11, sorry, 15, sorry, 15 to 22, I'm sorry, 15 to 22. Brethren, I speak in human terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant or man's will, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise has now been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all the men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as we look into this portion of your word, that we would not look at it and understand it simply as the writings of a man, not simply as inspirational writings, Lord, but that we might look at it and listen to it and try to understand it as the word from you, the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this portion of your word. It's a little bit challenging, I, I admit, and so we need the Holy Spirit's help. We pray, Father, you would help us to See the truths in this scripture clearly enough that they will point us to Christ. And we might find hope in realizing that he is the one who deals with us in grace in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in this passage, we're going to consider two reasons why the promise of the gospel of grace is this unifying theme, this one way of salvation that's found through the scriptures. And why it makes no sense to promote some other convoluted or new and improved approach, some man-centered, some sort of works-based gospel, quote-unquote, that someone else is promoting. So that's what we're looking at, and let's look at the first point here. The gospel of grace involves a permanent promise ratified by God. Paul starts off here, and he's going to give a demonstration from everyday life. And he tells why the gospel of grace has always been the one and only way to gain acceptance with God. And he says, listen, the gospel cannot, the promises of the gospel cannot be revoked. So he uses the illustration from the world of jurisprudence, from the world of courts and laws. And in the first century, and even in our 21st century, people make and sign binding legal documents. We all perhaps have been involved in something like that at some point in our life. 
He's not talking about a contract here. He's talking about a legal arrangement in which one party makes it very clear what is to happen to that person's estate, that person's belongings, that person's uh, all of their worldly goods. They decide this is what I want to be. This is what I want to be done with them when I die. It's called one's last will and testament. How many of you have a will? Okay, some of you need to do that at some point. <clears throat> Might be helpful. But the will is a legal document. It's signed by the person who's making the will. It's signed by several witnesses who verify, yes, this was done not under compulsion. It was done voluntarily. It was truly signed on that particular day. It's a binding document. When the person dies, that becomes now the action plan that we carried out on behalf of the person who came up with their will. No one can add to it. No one can set it aside. Once the person has died, the file has been property, properly uh, filed. It cannot be amended or adjusted. Now, that can be painful sometimes. Some people don't like that. That's the way it works. I read earlier this week a story of a woman who died, and she left all of her property, all of it, not to her children, but to a particular university. And once that was declared as from her will that all of her worldly goods would be directed and bequeathed to this particular educational institution, let me tell you, her children were not pleased. And so they hired a lawyer and they did their best to seek that they would somehow could not understand how they could be left out of their own mother's estate. And yet that was her intention, that was her actual intent, and therefore... They contested it in court, but they lost their case. Why? Because they could do nothing to change the terms of their mother's will. Now, Paul is arguing from a lesser, a human example, to now let's think about God and how he operates. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says that since a human will, there in verse 15, since a human will, which, by the way, is the word in the text there is translated for some of you covenant, but it really is the word from which we get the word will or covenant. It is unalterable. Once a person dies, a human will, you can't change it after the person dies. Now, he says, if that's true, how much more is it true that God, when he made a covenant or a will he uh, in, in, included or made known to Abraham, to bestow this incredible inheritance upon him and his offspring, including Jews and Gentiles, he says, that too is unalterable. It cannot be changed. It has already been God's will. It is God's covenant. It is a signed document, as it were. There's no possibility of revoking God's promise of the gospel to Abraham and his offspring found in Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 or Genesis 17 or a number of other places. And in verses 16 to 18 in this text here, in Galatians 3, when God commits to bless Abraham and his offspring by providing a Messiah who would make atonement for sin and reconciliation with the holy God on the basis of faith, those promises that he made are irrevocable. They cannot be broken. You say, but wait a minute. Didn't God change some of those understandings when he gave the law? The law was given 430 years later, after Abraham. Here's Abraham. 430 years later, you have Moses receiving the law from God in Sinai. Surely that would invalidate and nullify what God 
had already stated in this will to Abraham and his offspring, some would claim. But the promise of the gospel is not dependent upon Abraham's faithfulness or performance. The blessings are provided on the basis of faith alone as set out by God's immutable decree. God says, I'm going to do this, period. Let me just remind you just for a second here, because some of us have a hard time with really believing that something that's promised is really going to be held and followed as promised. Some of us have grown up or have been through situations where we have been burned, we have been given all sorts of promises and all sorts of assurances, and people break their words. But look at this, listen to this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. You ought to write that down if it's not in your notes. Hebrews 10, 23 reminds us of God's reliability. It says that God who promised is faithful. He does not back down on his promises. He is faithful, period. That's 100% of the time. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says that God, who made promises from long ago, does not lie. He does not fib. He does not make half-truths when he does promises. And so the promises of the gospel are not somewhat reliable. The promises of the gospel are not mostly reliable. They are not possibly reliable but the promises of the gospel according to first corinthians chapter second corinthians chapter one are yes and amen in christ they are a hundred percent reliable you can bank on them again i say you say well wait a minute i have known so many people who have insisted that they would abide by their promise and they've reneged on their commitment for some of you it's in the realm of marriage. Others of you, it's in the realm of business. and some sort of contract that you may have signed. People backed away from what they said. They would come back and they'd say, well, that was then, but this is now. I want you to hear me clearly. God never operates that way when it comes to the gospel and the promises we receive in the gospel. His yes is yes. His no is no. Now, do you ever stop and think, you probably did, didn't, because I hadn't thought about this till just this week. Did you ever stop and think, why did Jesus, in the Gospels, not say it once, not twice, but three times he predicted that he would suffer, he would be killed, and then he would be raised on the third day? Why did he do it just once? Or why just twice? But he did it three times. I would suggest to you, now I have no proof to this, this is my own conjecture here, but I think it's a fairly good one. I believe that he was, in making the promise three times, he was seeking to instill trust and confidence in his disciples that he keeps his promises. And he's emphasizing that to them so that when they saw that indeed it happened just as he said, they learned to say, you know, he really does keep his promises. The promises of the gospel are immutable. They cannot be changed or somehow uh, uh, mod modified in such a way that God reneges on them. Now, the false teachers there in this particular churches there in Galatia, they're trying their best to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of people who had read and heard about the promises of the gospel, the gospel of grace alone, received by faith alone. Now, remember who they were. They were what we call rule keepers. 
people who love to keep a number of rules and try to, to do all the right things, and, and they pride themselves on doing those things. They take it seriously. And these, this means that they are placing a great deal of importance upon the law that was given to Moses and the children of Israel a long time after this promise was given to Abraham. And so they insisted that the law was given all this 430 years later after the promise of Abraham, and therefore God has now been, he's added to the original conditions. He's given further requirements other than just faith alone. And they're saying that the keeping of the law was necessary in order to enjoy full and complete acceptance before God. And so these rule keepers, the, the legalists, insisted that the promise to Abraham and his descendants had been modified. It's now have been amended to some extent. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not going to fly. He looks carefully and he says that's an erroneous biblical idea. And he does this with great success by quoting scripture. Now, notice carefully what Paul's going to do here. He is going to counter false teaching and does so by what? Going right back into Scripture and using Scripture to refute it. And how does he do it? He goes back and says, even though it sounds reasonable what these false teachers were saying, I'm going to show you how it doesn't work. And I would suggest to you that's a good rule of thumb for every one of us. Many people can make the Bible say many different things, and they do. They can take one verse and they can make that verse sound so impressive and so biblically uh, correct, and yet if they don't handle it correctly by connecting Scripture with Scripture, they oftentimes take things out of context. And so the good rule of thumb for all of us here is that we would be like the Bereans, Acts chapter 17, who received the word with eagerness, and then, having received it, they would examine the Scriptures daily to see that what they were being taught really was true according to the Word of God. And so I'd urge you again to make that your practice. Whatever I say, whatever anyone else may preach or proclaim, whatever you read, check it out carefully in the Scriptures yourself to make sure it is true. Now in this instance, Paul is going to take every, his audience and he's going to direct them back into the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 12. And he focuses particularly on this word seed, which in the Greek word is the word sperma. And so it has, has to do with the idea of that which is one's descendants, that those who are one's um, uh, descendants is the best word probably, the seed. And obviously the word seed can be one of those unusual words. It's a singular word, seed, but it can refer also to what? It has sort of a corporate idea. Descendant. The promise of gospel blessings includes more than just a land of Canaan. That was more going on here in Genesis chapter 12. The promises of the gospel that God made to Abraham in Genesis and on a number of other occasions speaks of spiritual blessings that go what? To the whole nations, to all the people of the earth. It's not just limited to Abraham and those who are biologically descended from him. The promises of Genesis 12 include salvation to all who believe in Christ. And all who are united to Christ by faith share in the blessings of the gospel. And that's why it's interesting that Paul is so confident of the scriptures, he even quotes one word, seed. He is so confident that the scriptures are accurate, the scriptures are authoritative as we've received them, that he just says, it just, look at this, it, it, it's pointing to Christ. 
He is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. Now, let's just boil this down to where we live. My question for you today is, are you confident mostly in yourself as a person who tries to do all the right things, or are you much more confident in God and his promises in the gospel? Are you relying on the promises of the gospel? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, just for a second, page 1430 in your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, toward the right-hand side. Now this is going to be, anybody know the theme of chapter 11 in Hebrews? Hello? Faith, okay, it's the Faith Hall of Fame. It's all about faith, it's all about trusting in God's promises. It's not just a record of people who did heroic things and therefore we're out to just say, oh, look at all the rules these people kept. No, the whole point of the chapter is to emphasize that God has made promises and these people are those who responded in faith to those promises and in that confidence in God, they ventured out and did amazing things. Trusting in God who, relate, who deals with us on the basis of grace in Christ. And so look at chapter 11, verse 6. The author of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Wait a minute, I thought I had to keep a lot of wrong rules. That's the way to please God. To always do the right thing or stop doing the wrong things. That's the way to please God. No, he says, the way to please God, it's impossible to ever please God unless we, do, unless we trust him, unless we're confident in his promises to us in the gospel. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the rest of the account of that chapter is a listing of individuals who did indeed just that. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Abraham, uh, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, on and on and on and on the list goes. The point here is they had confidence not in themselves in their performance, their confidence is in God. And the promises that God has given to them, promises of grace, found in Christ. Look at verse 39, same, same chapter, Hebrews eleven thirty-nine. These, all of these people, verse 39, the summary statement here, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they waited to see the full fruition, the full uh, 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 outward manifestation of all the promises that God gives us and we didn't see it all yet. But they said what? They gained their approval through their faith. And then what does he do next? He points them right there in chapter 12. You cannot separate chapter 11 from chapter 12 because it's there carries a bridge called therefore. So if you argue that you have to, the only way to please God is to trust him and have faith in his promises, then he says in chapter 12, therefore, since we have all these people who have shown us what it means to take God at his promises, great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on whom? On everybody else who's running? And compare ourselves and say, look at him, he's way back there, I'm way ahead of him. I've made so much more progress than he has in this area of his life, he's still struggling back there. No, you don't keep your eyes on, you keep your eyes on Christ. Because in Christ we have all the promises of the gospel fulfilled. He lived the perfect righteous life and that he died for those who don't 
live a righteous life, and therefore we find forgiveness. We find, indeed, new life in Christ on the basis of faith. And then notice what he says there, verse 2. It is Christ who is the author and perfecter of faith. He begins it, he's going to complete it. He's going to show us that our confidence is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. Though indeed the one who has made it all possible. I don't know about you, but I find that I have to go back and review the promises that are found in the gospel every so often, on a regular basis. Why? Because we tend to lose sight and think, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. We get to focus on ourselves. And what Paul's saying is, it's always been an amazing will or covenant that God made to Abraham. It was done on the basis of his promise that will not be broken or changed. Praise God. Praise God. Now, second point here I want to make here. The gospel of grace is highly preferable to the law given to Moses. Again, he's speaking to a group of people who are very much holding high the law of Moses. And so he's trying to counter some of their assumptions and their preferences. And so he's going to provide additional reasons why the promises of the gospel are to be preferred over the promises of keeping the law. When God assured Abraham that he and his offspring would be blessed, those gospel promises were given to him how? Directly. Directly. God gave those promises right to Abram and said, listen here, Abram, this is how you are going to be blessed. I will bless you. There was only one party involved. It was God speaking, saying, this is the way it's going to be. I'm expressing my will to you, and it will be carried out. Now, those who put so much a high priority on the law, look, what's, look what he says here, verse 19. The law was given by means of Moses, who served as a mediator between God and the people of Israel. So it's a go-between. This guy named Moses goes up on the top of Sinai. He receives the law from God. He comes down, gives it to the people, and says, here's all that God has said to us. He's a mediator, a person who is going between two parties here. And the parties are what? God's saying, you do this, and the, and the understanding is, yes, we'll do that. We'll agree to that. And if not, we receive the curses, and God says, okay, that's the understanding. He says, listen, the direct deal is much better. It's given with one party involved. It is the promises of the gospel found and given to Abraham. Secondly, the promises of the gospel, blessings to the children of Abraham who believe they were given on, who believe they are given on the condition of grace. While the blessings of law-keeping were given on the condition of human performance. What a difference between those two. For example, turn in your Bible to page 16 in Genesis chapter 15. All the way back, Genesis 15. This might be back to some of the parts of your Bible that are real crisp pages that you maybe haven't read recently. This is one of those examples of God dealing with Abraham. He's already made a promise that there's going to be a blessing of a child, a biological child from Abraham who is beyond having children. You're going to have this child anyway, and that child is going to have such an offspring, so, so many descendants come from you and that particular child that you look at all the stars in the sky, that's going to be the number of descendants from you. It's a huge promise. 
And look at what we read in, he, in uh, Genesis 15, verses 4, 5. Abram's response was what? He believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. doesn't say Abraham did all these things and jumped through all these hoops. He just believed the promise of God and trusted God. And God gave him a gift, reckoned it as righteousness. Then the Lord ratified a covenant. What comes next in this chapter is the ratification of a covenant with Abraham. And he assures Abraham, listen, I am going to bless you unconditionally. It's on the basis of grace. It's not on the basis of your performance, Abraham. Now, the term they find in this particular chapter, when it says they're going to make a covenant, in chapter 15, he says, uh, if you look at the verses, uh, verses 9 and 10, look what he tells Abram to do. He says, Abram, wants you to go out, I want you to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Now, I'm thankful that I've not been asked to do this, because this would be very difficult for me to do. Some of you are hunters, okay. But he was asked to go out, find these livestock. Of course, he's used to doing these things, because that's the culture they live in. And he says, I want you to slice them right down the middle. So we have half a heifer over here, and half a heifer over here. Half a goat, half a goat. So you get the idea, they laid them out on either side. I'm sure the flies are starting to gather. It's not a very beautiful scene at all, is it? And you say, why is God making him do this? What did Abraham do next? We read in the text that Abraham went to sleep. And in the process of sleeping, it's obvious that he's doing nothing here. And in this vision, in the understanding of what happened next, is that if you look at verse, um, look at verse 17. When the sun set, very dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. That torch is a symbol of God's presence. It is God who symbolically, with this torch, is indicating, I am passing through all the carcasses that are cut and sliced and laid open on either side. I'm walking through the path. You say, that's the weirdest thing I've ever read. This is called, in that culture, to cut a covenant. It is a Hebrew term. That's literally what it means. And it meant... We're going to make an agreement. This is going to be a, a law, as it were, between you and me. A legal binding arrangement. And normally, the parties involved would both pass through the split carcasses, and by doing so, they're saying, may it be done to you, or may it be done to me, what happened to these animals if we break our side of this agreement? Yikes. I mean, you know, you're, you're, make, you're making a very serious understanding of a binding agreement. Now, I ask the question again, just for the sake of clarity, who's the one that passed through the split carcasses? There's only one. It is God, symbolically, with that flame. What's the point here? The point is that Paul knew this, and he's emphasizing again, Is he says, these promises were made by God obligating himself. And the only one who's obligating himself here is God. It is not Abraham saying, I'll do all the right things. They are received, all the conditions of this covenant are received on the basis of faith as free gifts. And you'll notice in verse 18 now, if you go back to Galatians 3, 
Galatians 3.18, it's interesting that Paul uses the word granted. Granted. He gave him these wonderful blessings on the basis of faith. All done with grace. It's a grace-filled blessings. Boy, that's not true about the law. The promises of gospel given to Abraham, that's one thing. But now you think about the law and Moses, all these stipulations came with the law. The law said, you shall do this, you shall do that. You shall do this, you shall do that. You shall not do this, you shall not do that. You shall not do that either. And they listed, listed, listed. Long list. And the blessings of the law depended on what? We said this last week, on human faithfulness, human performance. If you do it, man, you'll be blessed. But guess what? (laughs) All of those rules are demanding perfection. Absolute compliance. Is there anybody who does that? No. No, no one does that. The blessings of the gospel, however, are dependent on Christ, and Christ is the one who kept all of the law. He's the one who lived a righteous, perfect life. And those who understand how to find the blessings of the gospel, they're found in Christ and placing our faith in him and what he has done for us. And the law demands what we cannot perform. Perfection with no failings and no faults. See, the gospel is grounded in grace. It only requires sincere, genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ who paid your ransom and redeemed you from the curse of sin. And so he says, listen here, just look at the way in which it was laid out. One was one person passing through, obligating himself only, that is, on the basis of grace. The law is dependent on you being perfect. You're not going to know too many blessings because of the law, because of that. Third reason, real quickly. Some people begin to raise questions. Well, what is the purpose of the law then? Why did he give us this law? Well, again, the gospel is highly preferable because these promises in the gospel are given to provide a remedy for sin and help for those who are sinners. Whereas the law was given to what? Expose sin. You say to yourself, well, why does God want to expose sin in people's lives and hearts? (laughs) Let me tell you something. The law was given to Moses not for improving, not for the purpose of improving on something that was deficient in the promises that he gave to Abraham, promises of the gospel, faith alone. He was given to help people understand you are much worse off if you seek to follow all these rules because you'll see what's inside of you is not what you think. It is never meant to save you. It's meant to expose what's already there. Now, how many of you have ever had an x-ray? Or some sort of scan, MRI, or all these? Yeah, I remember one time I had a kidney stone. I didn't care what they were doing with me. I I don't care where they were going to scan. I said, just take a scan, do whatever you have to do, find out what's going on. I was in so much pain. So they took me in. I don't even know, MRI, I guess it was. I didn't drink anything. So I go in there, and I'm laying there. I'm going, oh, God, help them to find something. Either that or I've gone off the deep end and I'm imagining all this pain. It's not, it, it was real pain. So sure enough, they come back and they didn't say, the MRI has healed you. Has anyone ever said the X-ray, X-ray has just healed you? Fixed what was wrong? No, it doesn't do anything of the sort. It does what? It makes clear what is, if there is something wrong inside of you, it tells you what's wrong so we know what to do about it. 
Sure enough, that old sucker was stuck in there, that little kidney stone. Man. And then he told me I got a bunch more to deal with at some point. That's why I've been drinking water every day since. Now, here's the point. The law was never meant to provide you with what it takes to make you right with God. Keeping rules will never make you acceptable to God. It makes clear the fact of the sinfulness of sin within your own heart and your own life. You can see it very clearly with children. Johnny, put that down. Johnny, stop that. Johnny, don't do that. All you have to do is tell them not to do something. Little kid looks at you and goes, you know, they make a beeline for the thing you told them not to touch. What does that show you? It shows you something going on in the heart. Listen, I was the same way. You tell me not to do something, I'm like, oh yeah? We all have that problem. And people who treasure the fact that they're trying to be better people by keeping laws, they need to know what? The law shows us the standards of God and that you are indeed a lawbreaker. All of us are. Too many people try and misuse the law to somehow try to exonerate themselves and measure their performance against other people. And they say, well, you know, I don't do that. I don't do that either. And I surely don't do that. Look at him. You ever had a conversation with people about where do you stand before God? Talk about sin. People immediately want to get to talking about somebody else's sin who's much worse than they are. It's, it's just the response we all make. Why? Because we don't want to be shown to be who we are. We don't want the x-ray to reveal what's really out of order. The law shines its bright light upon our conscience so that we will admit our need for a Savior. It was never meant to rescue us. It's interesting, when you, when you realize Paul, the ultimate rule keeper, right? Well, Saul, in his pre-saved days, he was an ultimate rule keeper. But what happens? He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, I didn't know much anything about and never thought much about the fact that my heart was guilty of serious sin when it came to the area of covetousness. Because that's not a simple little rule that I can keep on the outside. That's a sin in my heart. Nobody sees it, nobody knows about it, but boy, I thought I'd wrap that. You shall not covet. has to do with my heart saying I'm dissatisfied and I am not content with what God has chosen to give me or not give me. I want what is not mine. And so the same thing is true with the law as it functions in us. It makes us realize there's so much corruption, so much that needs to be changed by God, it makes us realize I desperately need a Savior. Now, I came across an excellent quote. I'd like to ask you to read along with me if your eyes are good enough to read the small print. If they're not, just listen. But in your notes, John Stott has such an excellent, excellent summary of how the law should be functioned in our hearts and lives. Read along with me, would you? Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Everybody with me? You got your notes there? Can you see it? Okay. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell 
will return to the gospel to raise us to heaven. My friend, that is such an excellent understanding of how the law is used by God, not to point you on how to make yourself right with God, but to point you to how much desperately you need God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. And when we come to the Lord's table, which we're going to do in just a moment, I want you to think about this. Unless you know how big your debt is, that is, how much we have offended God, how many times we have broken the law, how many times we have just made a mess of our attempts to try to think we're going to be better than we are, we, have, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. So the more the law points out my guilt, the more I celebrate the wonder of what Christ has accomplished. He paid it all. It's finished. Trust his promises in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we know this has been somewhat of a tedious argument that the Apostle Paul spoke to a group of people who were big rule keepers. Father, we know there's nothing wrong with all those rules. What's wrong is our hearts. What's wrong is our own willfulness, our stubbornness, our pride, our rebellious ways. So, Lord, thank you that there's hope. Hope for the promises of the gospel that cannot be broken. Promises that are still in effect today, that all of us who are here, whoever we are, no matter what our background may be, no matter how far off the track we got, no, far, no matter how deep into sin we have been or even are now, we thank you, Lord, there's hope for us in the gospel that Christ paid it all and paid it in full for those who will believe and repent. So, Father, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves as we celebrate around the Lord's table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.